God, we thank you for the opportunity to not only to gather, to sing your praise, and to lift our hearts in prayer, but also to open your word together. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would uh, make these words uh, alive. Help us to see uh, through them who Jesus is. And, And I pray that we would see our need for him and recognize him. And that through the power of the spirit, you would bring us uh, new life in the name of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, My four-year-old son has this uh, ability to space out and to just completely lose sight of everything that is happening around him. So uh, we, we, when we eat, dinners uh, together. We try to try to encourage conversation among the family. We try to think of different ways of doing that and engaging everybody around the table. Uh, so last week we were doing this thing where we would pick um, a couple of ingredients, like two or three ingredients. We say, okay, if you had these few things, uh, what would you make? What kind of food would you make with those things? Uh, and then we'd go, everyone around the table would answer, oldest to youngest, and everyone have a chance to, um, to j- j- chime in. So uh, someone picked like tomato and, and red pepper. Say, okay, what would you do if you had those things? And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm oldest, I go first. So I, I would make a pizza with those things. I'd add a few other things to it, and, and here we go. And it was my wife's turn. She would make some kind of grain salad, and then it was my oldest turn, and he, he wanted to get rid of the uh, red peppers and try something that would taste a little bit better maybe and get something else going. And then we come around to, to my four-year-old. Okay, Clement, what would you make? And he looks up with this, with this blank expression on his face, and he says, what? And he's been completely ignoring this whole conversation. Everyone else is engaging, and everyone else is paying attention. Everyone else, even my two-year-old has an answer ready to go for what she would make with these ingredients. But my four-year-old is just totally spacing out. So, okay, no, here's what we're doing. We're getting some ingredients. Explain the whole thing to him. And okay, got it. So we go around again. Two new ingredients. Everyone goes down the line. Okay, Clement, what would you make with these? He looks up, what? Again, just totally oblivious to what's going on. He's, he's just not involved with the conversation around him at all. He feels like he doesn't have to listen to what's happening. It's not relevant to him, and so he's not listening. He doesn't care what's happening. We have to actually stop and address him directly to be able to get his input, to see that, that he is actually part of this conversation that we're having. And it's easy for that to happen in, in church services too, right? I, I've been there. You're, you're sitting there and you're kind of listening like half an ear, but, but you've heard some of this stuff before and, and you don't really think that it's going to be that important for you to hear today. And by the way, I'm, I'm not trying to guilt trip you. That's not where I'm going with this. But instead, today we see that this is actually nothing new. This is something that happens consistently in the ministry of Jesus. People are caught off guard by the importance of what he's saying. So today we see an encounter where someone comes to him And Jesus will pinpoint that guy's need, and yet he feels like he's not in need at all. Yet Jesus is going to call him uh, to account. He's going to get his attention and say that this message that Jesus has is a message for people like Nicodemus who comes to him. It's a message for everyone. And the message is this. Every one of us needs to be born new, and that's what Jesus offers us. Whether we recognize it or not, that's the need that we have. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at this um, text together. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 36. If you brought a Bible, great. Go ahead and turn there now. If you want to use your phone, a phone app, uh, do that. Um, Or you can grab a Bible from the chair rack in front of you. John 3 is found on page 1650 of the Church Bibles. Now, as we look at this text, we're going to see first uh, Jesus is going to lay out our need. And then we're going to see how he answers that need. And then finally, we're going to be left with a challenge. What do we do with Jesus? So we start off with our need. Everyone needs new birth. Here's how the story begins. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, 
Rabbi, we know that you are, are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, right off the bat at the outset here, we are cautiously optimistic about Nicodemus. The text says that he is a Pharisee, which meant that he uh, believed strongly in God's word, and he knew it thoroughly, and he tried to keep God's law meticulously. So he would have known his Bible better than anyone in this room knows the Bible. And not only that, but he also was a member of the Jewish ruling council, so he probably came from a pretty prominent family. So what that means is that he has every advantage when it comes to understanding God and knowing who God is. And not only does he have that background, but also it says that he has seen the miraculous signs that Jesus has been performing. We looked at some of those last week in John chapter 2. These aren't just powerful things for Jesus to show his power, but they are signs that point to his identity, who he is. They're showing that he is the one and only Son of God sent from God to rescue us. So Nicodemus has this great background, all these advantages. He has seen Jesus work firsthand, and now he's coming to Jesus. So we're pretty optimistic that something good could happen here. But at the same time, that optimism is tempered by a little hint in the text. It says that Nicodemus came at night. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se. Uh, We can only speculate the reasons he came at night. But in this book of John, night and darkness are theologically loaded terms. So already in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us that Jesus is the light shining into the darkness. And then Jesus will say in in John 9, 4, John 11, 10, he'll use night as a way of talking about spiritual darkness. So night is when people don't understand God, when they can't understand who Jesus is and, and what he's doing. So yes, Nicodemus has all the advantages. We would expect him to understand God's work, but at the same time, he is coming at night. So what's going to happen here? So he says that we know that you're from God because you've done these miraculous signs. And here's how Jesus replies. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So Jesus responds that this background stuff that he has is not that important when it comes down to it. Every single person needs to be born new. Everyone needs to be born again if they're going to understand God's kingdom. Now, the cool thing about that word again, being born again, is that not only can it refer to a a second occurrence of something, but also it can refer to from above. So it's a birth that's not just birth again, new birth, but also new birth from heaven. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. We need to be born new, the kind of birth that can only come from God himself, from heaven. And yet Nicodemus, as he's listening, totally misses that whole side of it. And so he's stuck on the literal meaning of being born again. And of course, the literal meaning doesn't make any sense. An adult can't enter into their mother's womb again. It just doesn't make sense. So this is an opportunity for Jesus to explain further. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 
So Jesus is continuing to explain what this means. He's, he's talking about the radical rebirth that has to happen if any of us is going to understand God's kingdom and his work. He says we must be born of water and of spirit. Now, that's a phrase that's been taken in all sorts of different ways in all sorts of different uh, church circles. But we're on, on solid ground if we go back to God's promises in the Old Testament and understand what Jesus is saying in light of those things. So there's this great passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God is speaking of the renewal that he is going to give to his people and he uses these two phrases, water and spirit, these two concepts to talk about what's going to happen. So Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So in the same context of God promising renewal, in the same sort of a way that we think of the rebirth, the new birth that Jesus is talking about, those same concepts are used to describe what's happening. So born of water, that, that means that we are cleansed from our impurities. The guilt of our sin is removed from us with a washing of water. And then given a new spirit, it means that, that we are now renewed inwardly. We're given a new heart that can understand God's work and that can align in, in, in like a new life in him. So, so it's pointing back to what God had already promised and giving it voice in this new birth that Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus says that, that this isn't something that we can fully understand, or it's not something that we can control. And so he uses the example of wind. You can't control wind. You can't see wind, but you can see its effects. And so with the Spirit, we can't control the Spirit. We can't fully understand everything that's happening, but we can see its effects. Well, Nicodemus just doesn't get it. Verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. So Jesus continues. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then can you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him." So in this episode, Nicodemus has shown that he is indeed coming at night. He is spiritually darkened. He doesn't understand what's happening here. And really what this shows is that he is in need of exactly what Jesus is saying he's in need of. And yet it's so easy to miss that. If you're a guy like Nicodemus with his background, his knowledge, all of his advantages, it's very easy to feel like he has this figured out. And that's what it looks like. He doesn't recognize his own needs. So he's coming to Jesus and he's asking for more. But even as he's asking more, he's setting the agenda. He's coming. It looks like he's saying, well, Jesus, you prove yourself. We know that you must be from God, but give me some other evidence that you truly are. Nicodemus will be the judge of who Jesus is. But Jesus turns the tables on him. No one can understand the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Not even someone like Nicodemus. But Nicodemus just doesn't get it. He doesn't see his need. He lacks the humility to actually hear what Jesus is saying to him. 
And this is so like us, isn't it? Isn't this such a, a human trait to, to lack the humility to actually hear something and learn from it? Uh, when I was in school, I, I did some work on the side transcribing different conferences. So I got to listen to a lot of different, uh, different really interesting material. But one that really stuck out to me was this conference on improving medical outcomes. And they were specifically focusing on how they could uh, eliminate or at least really dramatically reduce human error in different medical procedures. So there was some research being done at the time on how a simple checklist, going through a simple checklist, could improve surgical outcomes. So they had these pilot programs that they were running, and the results that they found were really shocking. So there was a pilot program here in Michigan that saw a 66% drop in infections after surgery just from using a simple checklist pre-surgery. Another pilot program found 40% reduction in accidental deaths. 40% reduction. I mean, these are huge results. 66% drop in infections, 40% drop in, in deaths, all from using a simple checklist. So, of course, you think, well, if that's true, then if every surgeon in the world, every hospital in the world is going to start adopting checklists. But you know what they found? Surgeons didn't want them. They felt like, no, no, I, I have this. I, I'm confident in my abilities. I don't need someone you know, running down a simple little checklist because I've got this. Maybe someone else needs this, but no, I, it feels like it's unnecessary. It feels like it's just more paperwork. It's demeaning to me to make me go through a simple checklist. You see what that is? They're lacking the humility to see the evidence and to recognize their need and do whatever it takes to get better patient outcomes. They're simply too proud. And so Nicodemus here, he comes to Jesus with confidence. He sets himself up as the one who gets to judge whether Jesus is truly the one and only Son of God or not. But Jesus turns the tables. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Even someone like Nicodemus, who has every advantage. And so as readers, we're listening to this story, and, and we have to come to the recognition that what this means is that everyone needs to be born new. If even Nicodemus, who has all of the knowledge, all of the background, who has the Bible memorized front and back, if even he needs to be transformed so radically that it can be talked about as born again, then every one of us needs to be born again. That includes you. It includes me. Even if you have the full Bible memorized, even if you're a charter member of a church somewhere, even if, if you know every theological creed that there is, even if you lead a life group, even if you serve every Sunday, if we don't actually have new birth from God, that means that we're lost. We're just doing religious things. And the good news is that Jesus is offering that new birth. And he's pointing back to this story in the Old Testament, Numbers 21. God's people had rebelled against him and they were disobeying him and there's this, this kind of plague, this infestation of poisonous snakes that's coming around the people and people are getting bit, they're dying. It's a really terrible situation. And so finally, they realize their guilt. They confess before God and they ask for his deliverance. So God tells Moses, his leader, to make this bronze serpent and, and when he raises the serpent up, people can look at that and they'll be healed. So it's a kind of crazy story. But Jesus uses the story to indicate that he is bringing God's salvation. People who look to him will be rescued. They will be born again. They will get this new birth that leads to eternal life. That's what Jesus is offering us. So as we look at the, the need that we have, Jesus points it out clearly. Every single one of us needs to be born new. And then we see that Jesus offers us exactly that. Jesus offers us life. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you see, Jesus isn't being mean to Nicodemus here. Jesus is giving him a gift. He's helping him to see that he is needy and that he is going to meet that need, that Jesus himself will meet that need. The purpose of Jesus coming isn't to condemn. The purpose is to rescue, to bring salvation. And this is the dividing point. Everyone who believes in Jesus has eternal life, but those who reject Jesus are outside of God's life. See, this this most famous verse in the Bible shows us that the love of God, it shows us the good news of Jesus in in short form. All of this is rooted in God's love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Now, this is such a familiar phrase to us that it's easy to just go over and, and not even blink. But it's a magnificent statement because the world, as John uses it in this book, basically means those who are God's enemies, In short form, that's what it's talking about. The world is those who oppose God, who are against him. So to say that God so loved the world means that God so loved people who were opposed to him, who reject him, who are his enemies. But God loved them so much that he sent his own son to rescue them. I want you to think about what that means for a minute here. That that means that the mission of Jesus is breathtakingly beautiful. It means that there is no one who is outside the scope of the love of God. It means that there is no one for whom Jesus did not die. There is no one who has not offered this invitation to find life in Jesus, to believe in him and have eternal life. See, this is why the story of Jesus is called good news. It's why it's called gospel. He will die on a Roman cross, and it might look to human observers like that that means that God is not in control or something has gone wrong with his plan. But actually, that is the plan of God. That is how God brings us salvation. Jesus saves us through his own death. See, it was a sacrificial death. He died the death that we deserve to take away the penalty of our sin. And we can know this as we look to him and see that our sins are forgiven. Everything wrong we have ever done in the past or ever will do in the future is taken care of at the cross. And we can know for certain that this is true because the cross isn't the end of the story. On the third day, Jesus was raised from death to life, and the resurrection shows us that the powers of sin and darkness and death are defeated forever. And this is for us. This is for our salvation. This is the good news that we are offered. But not everyone will accept this. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And this is the turning point. This is the dividing point of humanity. God loved the world so much that he sent his own son that whoever believes in him would have life. But those who reject him remain under God's wrath. They remain outside of God's rescue and his salvation. 
Jesus is light shining into the darkness, but light isn't always wanted because we have secrets. Sometimes light reveals things that we would rather keep hidden. And if you have secrets to keep, you don't want them to be exposed. I mean, every one of us has done things that we hope no one ever finds out about. The most natural thing in the world for us is to hide. We learned this at a very young age. It comes so natural to us. In our family, we always try to tell our kids that, that they can come to us with anything. If you do something wrong, don't run away and hide. Come to us. We will forgive you no matter what you have done. We will forgive you, but you have to come to us. Tell us the truth of what happened. But it's not something that comes naturally to them at all. The most natural thing is the complete opposite of that, to run, to hide, to be in shame. It's something we have to learn and relearn and relearn. Any parent who's walked into a room, you've known that moment where suddenly all the kids stop talking and they freeze. And they look up at you. And they have this guilty look in their eyes. And they know that judgment is coming. And so you ask them, hey, what's happening? Nothing. Nothing's happening. But their guilt gives them away. But this is all of us, right? We don't want to be exposed. We want to hide the things that we have done so that no one finds out about those things. One of the fun things about having a, a toddler around is that moment when they're, they're doing something that they know they shouldn't be doing. And you walk into the room and their back is turned to you so they don't see you enter. And so you kind of sneak up to within a few feet of them and then you call their name really sharply and they jump about this high. It's like my favorite thing to do as a parent. Uh, pray for my kids there. Um, that fear, that hiding that we have is so natural to us, but... This is what the gospel does. Jesus frees us from that. He came to free us from that, that guilt and that shame and that hiding, that, that, that feeling, that, that dread of being exposed and found out. His death offers real forgiveness for our sins. You have done things that you are ashamed of. You hope no one ever finds out about those things. But listen, the power of your sin is not more powerful than the power of the cross. He offers you forgiveness for the real bad things that you have done. No, you are not perfect. Yes, you have done some things that, that you are ashamed of, but you don't have to be ashamed anymore because the power of the cross has removed that guilt from you. He has come to set you free from that. That's what the cross does. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why it's so good for us. And through the resurrection, we now have new life, which means that we don't have to live in hiding anymore. We don't have to be ashamed anymore. Anymore. We now have new life in him. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. No more hiding. It means that my identity is not wrapped up in doing good things. My identity is not wrapped up in somehow getting accolades from other people. No, my sole identity is in the fact that Jesus has forgiven me for everything wrong I've ever done and he has made me a child of God. That's what my identity is in now. That's my hope. That's my joy. Jesus offers us life. This is the good news of the gospel. He came not to condemn, but to rescue us. But we have to actually accept it. And so we're left with a challenge to turn to Jesus. The story continues with more people wondering what to do with him. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial cleansing. 
They came to John, Jesus, excuse me, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So this is about John the Baptist, and and John the Baptist's disciples are wondering what on earth to make of this. They have committed themselves to John. They've been listening to him. They've become his disciples. And now he is pointing to Jesus, and people are following Jesus instead of John. So where does that leave them? Well, John uses this as an opportunity to point past himself once again. He has done this his whole ministry, and now he's doing it again, pointing to Jesus. It's not about John the Baptist. It's never been about John the Baptist. It's all about Jesus. And the wedding analogy is, is a really fitting one. I mean, can you imagine going to a wedding someday and, and having the best man try to steal the show? So the bride's coming down the aisle and everyone's standing and beaming at her and the, the best man runs down the aisle and gives her a big hug and, and walks her up the aisle? It'd be absurd, right? Or they start to do the, the vows and he comes and he kind of shoulders the groom out of the way and starts to like give his own little uh, take on what's happening here. Or it comes time to, to give her the, the ring and, and he insists on putting it on her hand himself. It, it, this would be absurd, right? It's not about the best man. This is about the bride and the groom. And so it is with John. This is not about him. All of the attention is, is on Jesus. John is simply pointing people to him. So rather than being a time for confusion or jealousy or shame, this is a moment of great joy for John and his disciples. And so we're left with the closing wrap-up here. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And then the last verse gives us the closing challenge. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So we get a recap of of what this whole chapter has been about. Jesus is the one and only. It is all about him. He is the, the one and only Son of God who came to bring life, and believing in him is the path to life. Jesus is exactly what we need, but we're called to actually act on this story about Jesus. Everyone who believes in him has eternal life, but those who refuse to believe in him stand outside of God's life. So what's happening here is that the text gives us an implicit challenge. It's indicating that the only thing that makes any sense for us is to believe in Jesus, to accept this gift of life. I mean, this is how the text has walked us along. We saw that, that every single one of us, no matter what our background is, we need to be born new. And then we see that Jesus is offering exactly that. He's offering us life. And now, what do we do with this? Will we actually believe him? Will we actually receive the life that is found in him and in him alone? We're all in, in different places spiritually. Some of us are exploring right now. 
Some of us are pretty sure none of this is true. Some of us have staked our lives on the reality of it. But no matter where we are, the text gives us the the same challenge. We're challenged to leave other commitments, to leave every other allegiance behind, to not trust in anything else but Jesus himself, to experience the radical reformation that is new birth. That's why Jesus uses that that phrase, is because it's such a radical transformation. It's not just that we need a little bit of help, help along the way, but that we need to be born Again, born new, born from heaven. And so the challenge for us is to believe. That's what's offered to us, to believe and to experience what it means to have new life in Jesus, to be born again. So I want you to think about this for yourself. Where is your allegiance? Where does your commitment lie? You are offered life in him. And you're challenged to actually make a decision to not just listen and move on, but to hear and to examine and to make a decision on this. Will I, like John writing, believe in Jesus, believe that life is found in him, or am I going to look elsewhere? If you've never made that decision, today could be that day. Today could be the day where you decide, yes, I believe that Jesus really is who the Bible says he is, that he really is the one and only sent from God, that he is the rescuer, that life is found in him. And if you do that, one of the important ways that we show it is by making a public proclamation of that. As Joy mentioned earlier, that's what baptism's about. It's us publicly proclaiming, yes, I believe in Jesus. I trust him with everything. He is my sole allegiance. I'm letting go of everything else. It's like I'm dying as I'm laid down into the water and then rising to new life in Jesus. Baptism is this beautiful physical picture of what being born again looks like. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've never done that. I want to challenge you to consider this. This is in obedience to Jesus. This is what he has called us to. It's an opportunity for us to publicly proclaim what this is about. So come to the class next week. Learn a little bit more. Find out about this. But this chapter isn't just a challenge to those who are considering Jesus for the first time or those who are, who are new to trusting him. This chapter is an implicit challenge to all of us to examine ourselves and to see where our allegiance really lies. So first, it means that our allegiance has to be Jesus alone and not to human tradition and not to a human teacher. So Nicodemus had plenty of human tradition, but he missed that on Jesus. John's disciples were in danger of being tied to a human teacher, to John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God. But they were in danger of missing out on Jesus because of their commitment to him. And that danger is is today as well. It's very easy for us to get wrapped up in things that are, that are peripheral things. Our commitment, our allegiances are, are to something else. Something is holding us back from that. But the text challenges, no, it has to be Jesus and Jesus alone. This is one of the reasons that the Bible is so important to us as a church family. You don't need my opinion. You don't need some human tradition telling you something. What you need is Jesus. And the Bible is the only infallible way to actually know him. So spend some time checking your allegiance. Make sure it's not tied to just a tradition or just tied to a particular human teacher, but make sure your allegiance is to Jesus, the one and only. And second, this means every area of life. Jesus calls us to a radical transformation that can only be described as being born again. That means that we don't get to have some areas of our life that we hold back. Like, Jesus, you can have everything, but, but not the way I spend my money. Or, Jesus, you can have everything, but, but not my sex life. Those things are off limits. It doesn't work like that. When Jesus calls us to himself, it is a total surrender to him. Every area of my life is yours. 
I believe in you. I trust in you. I am yours. When I was in school, I, got, I was given this little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And the, and the whole point of it is walking through mentally every area of our lives and considering, okay, will I hand this over to Jesus? My study, my work, my, my free time, will I hand everything over to him? Do I really believe that life is found in him? This is a great time to do an audit of your life. We have started off this year alongside uh, 16 churches in our community with a, a 21-day period of prayer and fasting. This is an opportunity for us to be seeking God, to expressing our hunger for him more than anything else. And I've talked to a number of people, and you're engaged in this in different ways. Let's use this last week. We have seven more days in this. Let's use this last week and the focused time and attention that's brought about by fasting to open ourselves up to God and to ask him to examine our hearts and to show us what is inside. Am I really showing that I have been born new from heaven? Am I really putting all of my trust, all of my hope in him? Or am I holding areas back? See, the challenge for all of us is this. Every single one of us needs to be born new. And that's what Jesus offers us. Believe in him. He is the source of life. Pray with me. God, I thank you that Jesus is for everyone. He is for people who seemingly have it all together, like Nicodemus, every advantage when it comes to understanding God, but still greatly in need. And he is in need of those who, of us who have seen that we are desperate without him and lost without him. God, I pray that you would first of all show us that we do truly need you. None of us is strong enough or smart enough to, to be able to come before you. We need your son. I thank you for his salvation. And then, God, I pray that you would bring us back to the gospel, back to the cross, back to the resurrection, that we would see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, and that we would find life in him. Father, by the power of your spirit, be renewing our hearts and minds. May we be born again by the power of your spirit so that we may have eternal life in your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.